Welcome back to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. Today's segment is Caring is Giving with yours truly, L. Cole. We have a very exciting guest today, so please continue listening to the full episode. This podcast is powered by the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, and we would like you to remember that the information shared on the Vitamin SC3 podcast is for informational or educational purposes only and does not substitute professional medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals. To become a member of the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, visit sicklecellconsortium.org. The Sickle Cell Consortium is a collaborative designed a little bit like the United Nations in theory so that we can bring together many organizations for sickle cell throughout the country and now throughout the world, as well as um, independent patient caregiver leaders, opinion leaders, advocates, those that are active in this space. And our goal is, what we've always done, is bring our community together so that we can create projects, priorities, initiatives. We can figure out what are the problems, needs, and gaps in the sickle cell community, and then figure out how we're going to collectively address this. Welcome to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. I am one of your hosts, Al Cole, and this is the Caring is Giving segment. Today, we have a fantastic conversation for you, and I want you to tune in, listen up, and learn more about what is going on in Prince George's County, Maryland. So I'm going to give my guest a special opportunity to introduce herself. We have with us today, Rachel Taylor. Um, Hello, everybody. Hello. Um, Like she said, my name is Rachel Taylor. I am a longtime resident of Prince George's County. I've lived here since we came to the United States when I was four, and I'm 45, so you can do that math. Um, I've lived in different sectors of PG County. I've met my husband here, got married here, birthed four beautiful children here, um, two of which have sickle cell anemia, SS, and so that's what brings me here to this podcast. I run... um, a small project management firm, and I'm just happy to be here to just talk more. Awesome. Awesome. I'm also a caregiver. I have a daughter who is 14. I actually have twins, but one has sickle cell SS and the other has sickle cell trait. And so it's always a pleasure to meet another caregiver. I am also in Prince George's County, Maryland. So I think this is an awesome time in our community because last night we got to attend a town hall. So let's just kind of roll back and talk about why sickle cell disease is important in Prince George's County. Um, Well, there are many reasons why it's important in Prince George's County. First of all, um, the large population of African-Americans that we have in this county alone. Um, It used to be that um, we would always lead with saying PG County has is the largest pocket of wealth of African-Americans, you know, one of the top five wealthiest African-American areas in the country. And I think that wealth has to be reflected in all forms, not just 
um, how much money you make per capita. It has to be seen when you go through the entire community, meaning that everybody's needs are met. Um, I think part of the reason why people choose to flock to certain places where they have large pockets of wealth is because even if you necessarily don't possess it, you know proximity, you will have access to the best health care, to the best schools, to the best parks, to just overall better. Um, so I think that, you know, that's why this is very big highlighting in PG County, because we should be the leaders in this conversation just for that reason alone or amongst one of the leaders. So. Absolutely. And I know, so I'm not native to the area. Um, I moved to Prince George's County 16 years ago. Mm. And that's long enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So it was after my husband and I got married, we wanted to live in this area. We're both from the South. He's from Alabama. I'm from North Carolina. And we wanted to live in an area that was progressive and this area seemed perfect. And mm-hmm. so we moved here. We didn't know we had the sickle cell trait, but we, we learned when I was pregnant um, that we, we both carried the trait. And so what has really just as an adult, because I really grew up here as an adult, I began to really see that our area, while it does have a lot of wealth, our school systems, like there are some deficits like the Mm -hmm. school systems. And it was like, you know, and health wise, we had to go to Johns Hopkins or go to Washington, D.C. to Children's for care for our children. And there are hospitals in Maryland, like Howard County has a hospital and Laurel has a hospital, but they're not hospitals. So if you are someone who is sicker, they're generally not a hospital um, that you would go to. You would go to one of the main hospitals, which is John Hopkins. And if it's a pediatric patient, they're going to go to Children's mm-hmm. National in Washington, D.C. So just in the last you know, couple years, we've heard about the new PG County Hospital. And I think it's phenomenal that our area is getting a hospital so that we don't have to travel as far because when you're dealing with healthcare, we know that time is of the essence. And, you know, when someone is in crisis, having to travel like 30 to 45 minutes to go to a hospital is uh, valuable time that is lost. And so, what is um, unique about our area and the new hospital? Why do you even think that they're having this conversation with the you know new hospital that's here about sickle cell? Okay, so like I said, when I started, I've been in this county since um, basically I got here. Um, so I've seen and and my oldest daughter not my oldest, but my, I have two children with sickle cell SS. The oldest is 19. The youngest is 10. So I'd like to say that I get this different perspective where I've even seen how the healthcare that was even offered and the options that were offered have even evolved since when my 19-year-old was born to even when my 10-year-old was born and even what she's getting access to now. So, okay. The question was, why is it important? conversation. Okay. So we're in a unique time right now where I, there's so many like different researches, research that's available about sickle cell. Um, 
And it's been, and it's mainly because I think we're just in a time overall with medicine where with stem cells, with all of these different things that people are seeing, oh, you know, there are ways that we can address long-term ailments and doctors, you know, who have been pushing and fighting for this are finally getting, you know, their voices heard. And like, you know, legislation is slowly starting to be pushed that has been introduced, you know, the Sickle Cell Cares Act. So I think we're just in a unique time right now. Um, that it only makes sense that with the hospital, it's just, let's say it's just when all the stars are aligning, for lack of a better word. So it had to be introduced. Um, you can't say that you're going to bring something this massive, um, a healthcare facility, but also not just a healthcare facility, a teaching healthcare facility <laughs> that um, in this area without addressing a huge healthcare crisis that affects this area. It just didn't make sense that that wouldn't be something at the forefront of their conversation. So I think that that's also why it's essential, especially at this time, for um, this hospital to basically address this concern because it's a huge crisis concern for the community. Absolutely. And if you are listening and you're like, oh, a new hospital, there's a new hospital in Maryland, where is it? It is the University of Maryland Capital Region Health Center that is in Largo, Maryland. And so last night we both attended the town hall meeting where we got to hear about um, the goal for, infu- for the center to have an infusion clinic for sickle cell disease and just better treatment overall. And if you've been listening to the Vitamin SC3 podcast, you know that we are over 100 years into sickle cell disease in this country, and mm-hmm. we have a long way to go where yes. doctors are being educated, nurses, and really just Um, better treatment for sickle cell patients where they're believed, where they're treated, where they're given the, just the necessities of life so that they can have a better quality of life. And that's really what we're looking at. And in Prince George's County, it has the largest number of sickle cell disease patients in Maryland. And so um, it is very important for us to make this a priority, make sure that our um, our community understands what sickle cell is and how we can make it better in the future. And so we all know just with COVID and all of the things that have transpired in the last couple of years, that health equity is a huge concern in the African-American community and in all communities where um, people are not necessarily getting the treatments that they need. And recently there has been an explosion in new treatments for sickle cell disease. So with that um, explosion and explosion and excitement, we have to do better when it comes to making sure that our healthcare staff members really understand how to treat sickle cell patients with dignity, with respect and compassion. That's what we are looking for. So you mentioned that you have a 19-year-old and a 10-year-old, and you've seen two completely different um, atmospheres when it comes to sickle cell disease in the community because, you know, these last five five years, it has been a huge explosion. Huge. Can you huge. kind of 
unpack what that has meant to you because I think there's a sense of hope um, just in the new treatments available. And you you mentioned, um, you know, gene therapy and some of those options. So can you unpack that for us? Sure. Um, First, let me piggyback a little bit on what you were saying, even with what we were learning with COVID. Um, I think one thing, one huge takeaway for me with COVID also, with the noticing the health equity differences, is that it also showed us how it affects all of us, right? Because with COVID, someone who could not afford to go to the doctor or could not necessarily, you know, stop working or could not, you know, shelter in place and all of that kind of stuff, they had to go out there, but they were still interacting with everyone else. And it was kind of one of those things where it flowed through the entire community. You kind of couldn't avoid it. So um, a huge lesson from that, from a health perspective, is how what happens to one of us can affect all of us. And it should matter to all of us because um, even, you know, the person who's just serving you your coffee or who's just cleaning the room, you know, could also, their health crisis could affect you as well. So I think that that's a huge takeaway that I always try to mention every time we talk about COVID. Um, But in the last, um, let's say even five to 10 years, I've seen huge huge changes, even within how Children's Hospital has managed pain. Um, I've, so when my daughter started going to Children's, they didn't even have, it wasn't in place where it was like, as soon as that she came into the um, emergency room, they automatically took her back, right? Um, that was something that happened within the course of her um, going there. That wasn't even something that was established before. We used to have to sit in the w- emergency room you know, and wait to be seen while, you know, we were in pain. I say we because I'm the mother and I felt felt it as well, probably not to the same degree, but as a parent. Um, So just that has been a huge change, seeing how they have tried to create like even just a holistic um, approach to health, even with the camp that they had available for the children to go to in the summer. We saw that from the um, inception, from when it started out as just an idea and it was just small into now how they have their own location um, because they were able to get funding and provide this to the children. Um, even learning about the 504 plan when she was in school and just how that that has developed, you know, hugely that my son is basically flowing through the system a lot more comfortably than she did early on. Um, and it's also given me like, resources to just become a stronger advocate, right? So when school starts, you tell I tell them up front, you know, this is my child. This is what their needs are. This is the situation. I don't even um, just wait for the counselor or someone else to present it. I present it. I introduce them. You know, I'm their parent. This is my child. This is the current concerns that can, um, that can arise. Um, I can also see that with the more tools that they were, that's been available to me that I've gotten from the hospital, from different organizations. Um, It's just made me more confident as a caregiver um, to be able to lead that conversation and not wait for, you know, moments um, that come, that arise. Um, Even the building of the Largo Center of Children's, (laughs) that was like, what? You know, now it's like literally in our backyard. So I just feel like, like I said before, it's just been a moment where everything is just seems to have just be falling into place, aligning perfectly, um, which makes me excited because that means that I feel like we're on the right path. This legislation is going to happen. Uh, you know, um, last night or even when I spoke, first spoke to Tanika, Tanika Hoffman, Hoffman, who, you know, leads the coalition 
for PG County, just her passion alone. You know, I was just like, okay, I've been in several um, sickle cell groups. Uh, A lot of times it was adults. And so as a caregiver of children, it's a hard conversation to have with an actual adult patient because they have like different perspectives. And a lot of times they're frustrated. I've heard about their frustrations with the system, them feeling like they're drug seekers. I've seen like some of the mental health issues that come as far as them being depressed. Some of them, you know, you're literally at the point where you're wondering why you were even born. There's a level of anger, you know, because, and as a caregiver, you will sometimes be the one to get the brunt of someone else's anger because you are a representation of you chose to have these children, right? Um, you know, and so the hope has come from, it's like, it's not a short life. It doesn't have to be a death sentence. You know, you can live a full and complete, you know, life. Your life is worth it. You know, even, even if it's brief, which sounds horrible, but it's something that, you know, we learn to live life to the fullest. Um, last night, and I know I'm jumping in questions, but I, there was the mother of, um, Senator Van Hollen's staffer when she spoke and it really struck me because I was like he passed but she is still pushing forward um and speaking on his behalf as a caregiver um because she experienced it from all sides so it's just it's just very encouraging and very hopeful to me in that sense that it's like you know, there's advocates on all sides, even Van Hollen, how he became an advocate just because this is a staffer that works for his office. And so I just think that it also shows the power of there was a time when it was something that you are shamed to say, you know, um, quick story. I remember when my daughter was young and we used to be in and out of the hospital with crises while we were trying to figure out the best way to manage her health. And I had a, um, a health care like a nurse at one point say to me, you know, I don't know why people keep having these children, right? Like literally, and I was a young mom at the time and you're already carrying this guilt as a caregiver, you know, and, and it's just like, okay, you know, I understand, but I, as I got older, I realized that she probably had her own frustrations because you can only do so much as a healthcare provider, um, you know, but it also showed me the importance of you, you have to learn empathy. Everyone's, you know, path is, you know, different. And just how that was almost 20 years ago. But have I, but going forward, has that ever, has that been my experience since? No, you know, and I'm seeing like more and more care put into not just, are you okay to the patient, but are you okay to the caregiver? What resources can we provide you so that you're not stressed about this thing so that you're able to be available to, you know, care for the patient? And just the fact that my daughter is 19, she's entered into adulthood and that this is now coming into fruition in her adulthood um, and seeing that she may not have to necessarily go through some of the experiences that I've heard others have to go through um, is exciting. You know, it's exciting for me. So I think I answered your question. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. You know, I just want to take a second because you brought up Kimberly Davis 
who was the mother of John Walters. John Walters was a staff member for the our Maryland Senator, Chris Van Hollen. And last year he passed away at the age of 29. And so I just wanted to take a moment and explain that to our listeners because Kimberly Davis is someone who is fighting for sickle cell, even mm-hmm. though her child has passed away. I like to say once you're a caregiver, you're always, always a caregiver, caregiver. because yeah. it it changes the your perspective on life. Mm-hmm. And once you have a, a child, once you become a parent, that's for life. Like yeah. even when your child grows up, you don't take off. <laughs> you don't get to say, oh, my child is an adult. I'm, I'm done. You know, it's, it's like you're still nurturing, but in a different way. And although her child has passed, she's nurturing our community yeah. in a way that is loving, that is compassionate. And, you know, I just, I like to bring that up because she's in this for life. And yeah. I love that she is pouring her pain because she lost her child at a young age. And, you know, I know that hurts as a parent. So, she is saying, hey, this is what I can do for my community to make someone else's child have a longer lifespan. And so this has become a part of her personal mission. So I just wanted to give her that shout out and yes. Senator Van Hollen's office because, you know, because of that personal interaction with his staffer, he does have a sensitivity to our community that that really has made a huge difference to see his passion and his drive for our community. So I appreciate that. And I wanted to just bring that up, you know, for a quick second. Um, One of the things that they talked about last night was a grant, a $1.4 million grant. Is there something that really excites you about hearing about that money being allocated? And I just want to, I want to pause just a quick second to let people know that yes, $1.4 million sounds like a lot of money. Yes, we are excited about it. But (laughs) just to put that into perspective, St. Jude runs their hospital over a million dollars a day. Yes. So if if you're able to kind of, yes, that's a lot of money, but one of the best hospitals in our nation is using that money every day. So- we're looking at this for a longer period of time. And while we're grateful, I'm just going to put it out there. We need more. <laughs> so, That's it. But tell us what about what, what you think about the grant. So um, the grant is exciting in the fact that it is a symbol, right? It's actual tangible money, but it's also a symbol of um, investing in an actual problem, right? Because we can all advocacy, advocacy, advocacy. And we ask our, you know, Congress people and, you know, everyone else to do what they can. But the actuality is things cost money, right? Um, To get things done, to even have, um, even advocacy costs money. Things need to be funded. And a lot of times there's, you know, the popular saying of you invest in what's important to you or what you value, right? You invest in yourself, invest in your business, you know, all this kind of stuff like that, because it's, it's a tangible sign um, that, you know, you're putting something in there because you believe that there's a potential for it to grow. So it's exciting to me because it's step one, right? The small investment, that's a tangible sign that you believe in something. And so there's the potential for it to grow. So um, I think that it's proof that, 
to all of those around us that look, it is possible, right? We all come together. We've gotten this $1.4 million. Um, and so that, and I've been to St. Jude's. It's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing campus. But what's more amazing is just the story behind it of how it even came into inception just from an idea from one man who didn't even know if this was possible. But he was like, I'm just going to move forward step by step. And it's where it is now because it literally started small with him just tapping into his resources that were surrounding him. And it slowly grew into something. So I throw out St. Jude every chance I get when we talk about healthcare stuff, because I'm like, it's a perfect example of how it can be done. You know, and there are a private run hospital that get funding from all sorts of resources that no one ever pays a cent. So I'm like, if it's able to be done, this is an example basically of showing it is doable, right? So, so let's see, what am I saying? My thoughts on the grant are like, it's exciting because it's just a drop, you know, in the bucket of what potentially we can do with it. And we just need to use it as a catalyst and motivation to just, you know, keep building on it. So, yes, I love that you put that positive, positive spin on it, because I think it is positive, Um, but it is a step. And it just tells us, look, if you can raise your voice and get together, unite as a community, this is what we can build upon. And Mm -hmm. so it is a stepping stone. And I, I, you know, my mom, I'm the youngest of five. And my mom used to say, put your money where your mouth is. And I think Mm -hmm. this is, this is one of those examples of us asking our legislators to put their money where their mouth is. Exactly. And I'm not saying it just because it's important to us, but when you look at sickle cell, sickle cell is the most common genetic disorder in the world. And in our community, those numbers are expected to rise by 30%. A lot of people don't know that they are trait carriers. Mm-hmm. So it is not that people are procreating with that knowledge. They haven't been educated. And so with these funds and this fervor in the community, we can raise awareness. We can talk about the importance of sickle cell trait and we can educate our community in ways that we haven't seen before. One of the topics that you touched on but didn't really go into is transition. And transition is when a pediatric patient moves from pediatric care into an adult hospital. And for many of us, I mentioned I was a caregiver. This is the period of time that I am the most afraid of. And it is something that they touched on last night in the town hall meeting about transition programs. And in the past, we haven't seen robust transition programs. There are some transition programs in other states that exist. And St. Jude has a transition program. But we need that duplicated across the nation, and especially here in Prince George's County, because we've already talked about how large those numbers are in our county. And so we have to start at a younger level, really educating the youth about sickle cell trait. And so is there any expectations that you have regarding transition and the programs that were kind of um, touched on last night? Um, Yes. So my daughter, like I said, is 19. She hasn't officially been booted out, for lack of a better word, out of children's yet. Um, I think they like to ease them out of out into population. Um, and I love that idea. Um, 
I guess my expectations is that there is a clear, seamless transition, for lack of a better word. Um, I'd like to see communication between the children's facilities and Hopkins and University of Maryland. And I think that this is what they were leading to what they were going to do. Um, I needed to be like, if my daughter goes on, to, goes into you know, University of Maryland Hospital, they're like, okay, let's pull up the, she's, you know, in the same way that it is in children. She's like, I'm an SS patient. And they're like, okay, here's our protocol steps for an SS patient. Let's take you, you know, to the back. Let's, you know, start, you know, infusions if you need to. Let's assess your pain. Let's let you um, explain what your, um, how your pain usually presents. Because I think that, you know, one thing I've also taught my children is you have to advocate for yourself to the best way that you can. So you, you know how, you know, you're like, I had a conversation with my 10 year old um, during one of his most recent crises that seemed to go on for days. And, and I was, and every day I would be like, well, how are you feeling today on a scale of one to 10, on a scale of one to 10? And one day he was like, you know, I'm at a two, you know, I'm at a two or whatever, one or two. And I'm just like, oh, you know, and he, I guess he could sense that I, I was kind of, you know, a little like, oh, he's not at a zero. And he kind and he was just like, mom, I'm never at a zero. Right. He's like, so just understand that, you know, I didn't even have to say it. He could sense it. And he was just like, just, I'm never at a zero. So a one and a two is good. Right. And that understanding, you know, that me as a caregiver is getting that understanding. Um, and I would love to see, like, we have that in the transition with hospitals, that they get that understanding, too, that the person can lead the conversation, you know, telling you, this is usually my baseline, you know, so you might be seeing my numbers and they may appear low to you, but this is where this is my baseline. They usually are this low. Um, and if there's a way that that can be done without the patient always necessarily having to speak for themselves, <laughs> right? Like it's somewhere on somebody's computer file or something where they're able to tap quickly and easily talk to the transition coordinator at Children's who can send them something that's like, let me send you this quick chart explaining to you, you know, boom, boom, boom. This is this patient's, you know, usual history with us so that you can have a better understanding of how to move forward. Um, I would love to see it happen like that, like to just be seamless in that sense that we can just flow through it as the patient and as the caregiver, um, that we don't have to do the majority of the heavy lifting, that we're able to just do what is needed to care for um, our health and for the patient's health. Oh, that's beautiful. And, you know, I, I want to kind of um, just share one thing that I learned this past week from the Caregiver Summit that I co-hosted with the Sickle Cell Community Consortium. One of the sessions talked about going to the hospital when you're well mm -hmm. and meeting the people who will care for you because it will give them an opportunity to see you in a better state and that can make a difference in your care. So what you talked about if in the chart, it talks about how that person is when they are well, because when they're not feeling well, they can be angry. Like there's so many things that can happen yeah. um, when a person is in pain that shows a negative light. And that isn't the person all the time. They're, they're faced with this excruciating pain and these complications because we know that the pain in sickle cell can lead to numerous other complications yes. as well. And so, you know, I felt when I heard that, I was like, 
that makes sense to have to present yourself, but that's a tall order, you know, that you feel like you have to go above and beyond to go to a hospital, meet the staff, meet the nurses so that they can see you when you're well, so that you can be treated like a human. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, we have to, we have to make small steps and, I think that's one of the steps that if that will ensure your care is better, why not? Yeah. You know, I'm disappointed that that is one of the things that we may have to do, but it is important. You talked about, you know, Kimberly Davis being someone who spoke that, you know, made a difference. You enjoyed listening to her and the message she shared. Was there any other speakers who really stood out and had a message that resonated with you? So, I mean, I'm going to say just about every speaker, I feel like, because you could see they all led with their passion. And that, I think, is always step one, right? Um, We all have to be passionate behind (laughs) what is happening. Um, Now, I don't know if I'm going to even remember this person's name. I mean, I loved Dr. Campbell, you know, but I'm also, you know, a little bit biased because he's my child's um, hematologist. Um, But I cannot remember her name. But she's the woman who was answering questions at the very end and helped basically pull the whole, fuse everyone together. And I love the way that she answered, she was answering the questions, especially when she was saying that everyone just needs to realize that things take time. And so it's a process. Um, But we all need to be, um, have basically how we all have a a part in the process. I think that that was also a theme that was floating through with everyone where they were like, tell us what we're doing wrong, right? But tell us also what we're doing right. And I think that to have that kind of an open dialogue or conversation where people realize that, oh, you mean I can tell you doctors, you know, I don't just have to complain about you, but I can say, oh, this is working, right? We like it when you do X, Y, Z and you'll take it and utilize it to build something you know, better moving forward. Um, I just love that. And that seemed like to be a theme that flowed through with everyone. They were just like, we want this to be a back and forth and open conversation with the, um, with the community, with our patients so that we can make sure that we are, you know, we're earning, you know, earning your trust. So, you know, so I love that. Um, and I think that, you know, that that was just basically the overall theme with everyone. I appreciated that. Oh, and the story at the very, very beginning about how he was, well, let me just tell the story real quick. It's the story of a guy who was walking past the river and saw people drowning. He jumped in to help them. And then he kept walking further up and he kept seeing more and more people in the river, kept jumping to help to pull them out. And then at one point he decided he's just gonna, you know, he was walking and someone yelled at him or yelled, you know, well, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going upstream to stop them from falling into the river, basically to stop the the issue that he kept trying to save drowning, you know, these drowning people. And he's like, why do they keep falling into the river? And that story was told at the very, very beginning um, as an example of what they felt this was. So I, um, I love that story because it is, it's a moment, we are at an upstream moment, for lack of a better word, where we can actually help, you know, people who, um, people from not having to endure what they had to, what they've had to endure. I've heard from many adult people who've had sickle cell because I've been in various groups when I was searching for just the community um, and hearing their experiences and just to see that, you know, 
there's an opportunity here where my daughter doesn't have to necessarily fall and halfway be drowning, where she can actually have help and care beforehand, you know, is, yeah, is very encouraging. So all of, I got a little bit from everyone that spoke uh, because they all led with their passion. Thank you so much. And I mean, just sharing that story is a perfect way for us to to end this conversation because it was kind of our hope, our goal. We don't have to keep jumping in to save people if we get ahead of them. And if we get ahead of this problem, we can save them from, you know, high morbidity rates. We can save them from poor treatment. We can save them from encountering people who don't understand what sickle cell is to begin with. And so I think that's, that's really our hope. That's really our goal. And that's where we want to get, not just here in PG County, but across the nation and across the world. So this has been just a fantastic conversation. It's been a true honor to listen to you, to hear about your takeaways from the town hall meeting and to learn from another caregiver who is experiencing different things. Sickle cell impacts families in many different ways. So I thank you for your transparency and just for being willing to be vulnerable and share what your family is experiencing and how it is, you know, hopefully going to be changed in the future with this new PG County center that exists. So thank you. Exactly. And thank you for your platform and for allowing me to be on it. This is an honor. Awesome. So everybody definitely um, tune in next week when we'll have a new show, but also Rachel, do you have any social media pages where you want people to connect with you? Um, <laughs> I mean, I have my business Instagram. It's uh, Maggie Aki Made, so I can spell it. It's like M as in mom, A, G as in guy, A, Y, A, K as in kite, I, and then the word made. It's all just all together. And that's my business page. So you all can, you know, tap into me there. Um, I'm Rachel Taylor on Facebook. If you want to tap in, I'm always loving to talk to, especially other caregivers and just give support. You know, we can go to birthday parties together, hang out at events, or if you just need to like chat and release, you know, I'm available. So Well, thank you so much. I wish you and both of your children well, especially as we move into this cold season. So um, it has been a true pleasure. So thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. We hope that you will leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Remember, a new episode is coming out next Monday. So please tune in and enjoy.